Let's go. You are listening to Dollars and Sensibility, the podcast that explores the numbers, concepts, and behaviors that shape your financial life. Hosts, business partners, and friends Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are financial advisors in Hollywood, California, that for a combined 35 years have helped thousands of individuals and businesses better their financial futures. Here, they want to open these discussions to you, the listener, share the many things they have learned, and of course, how to be sensible about your dollars. Greetings and welcome back to Dollars and Sensibilities here once again on this lovely Friday. Andrew Martz, how are you today? Bill McBride, doing fantastic. Good to see you as always. This is the Friday after Thanksgiving. Uh, so how was your holiday? It was good. It was good. Pretty low key. Spent with the family. How about you? Yeah. Lots of food, lots of football, lots of advertisements for lots of shopping. So buyer beware. Uh, though that is not what today's episode is about. Uh, about. I'm, I'm excited for today's episode when you, you sent me this over. You know, we're, we're always so serious, right? We, we're, we're funny guys. I mean, by nature. <laughs> but we, do, we rarely, if we you rarely do say get so that yourself. in there. <laughs> yeah, I wish, yeah. We rarely get that in. Uh, you know, we, we have some fun here. And, you know, a lot of it's off the air. And, you know, when I was looking at uh, the different outlines and different subjects, we, we, we've covered a lot so far in these past 89 episodes. And I just wanted to have some fun with you today. Just throw some stuff out there that's, not meaningless, but just fun fact episode, right? So let's kick it off. Uh, I, I caught this one as as we do during the holidays. You know, we're all thinking, well, not all of us. I'm thinking of trading places all the time, right? With uh, Eddie Murphy and uh, classic Philadelphia movie, yeah. Dan Aykroyd, of course. So I came across this fun fact, the Vanguard group, right? Van, everybody knows Vanguard as the, the, the powerhouse uh, in, investment firm is an American registered investment advisor based in Malvern, Pennsylvania, right? Right outside. Malvern Prep, by the way, where Kobe Bryant went to high school and not St. Joe's. We'll talk about that later. Uh, Vanguard Group has about $7 trillion in global assets under management, but this is what caught my eye. CEO of Vanguard, Mortimer Buckley. You ever hear that name before? Uh, yeah, but just in the context of being the CEO of Vanguard, why, wow. why else should I've heard that name before? Trading places. This is this is uh, this is prime trivia. Do you remember the two uh, the two older gentlemen that were the villains in Trading Places? I don't. Randolph Duke and Mortimer Duke, their brothers, played by Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici. Good times. All right. Trading, trading Places, <laughs> by the way, came out a year before I was born. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That was so classic. Yeah. That, was, that was the height of uh, Eddie Murphy's popularity, I think. I love report, anyway, recording this podcast because oftentimes in my life, I'm starting to feel like my age as a parent. I'm, I'm meeting younger and younger parents and my, my clients are getting younger and younger. But gosh, Bill, you always got a way of making me feel young again. <laughs> I just want to, you know, you got to average it out, right? We always talk about the mean and the median, Andrew. You got to, you know, I don't want to prohibit you from feeling young, but I also, you know, 
want to make sure you you're aware of history, and this is important history. So, Indeed Mortimer, CEO of Vanguard, Mortimer, also the CEO of whatever the company's name was. That's a separate trivia question from Trading Places in 1980, whatever the year that came out. Fantastic. All right. Fun fact number two, this is a stretch, Wayfair. I was just going down the rabbit hole, you know, as we do, looking at stocks and fundamentals and, and charts and graphs and good stuff. Wayfair, you know, I just I was like, when did it come out? And okay, it came out September 2014. IPO price was $36. Current price is $42. Now, why I was looking into this is, you know, Wayfair had a, a, a brilliant run, right? It it, it shot up and then back down again. But I always try to look, as we do on the podcast, is help people look at things in the proper perspective. So if we look at Wafer coming out in 2014, that's eight years ago, at 36, the current price 42, well, you made six bucks per share, mm-hmm. which comes out to about 16.66%. It's about 2% per year. Now, of course... Again, why we were looking into this or why I was looking into uh, the, the charts and all that was because I wanted to see, you know, a, a lot of time people will say to me, hey, Bill, you know, uh, Wayfair was $80, right? And now it's 42 That stinks, right? Well, perspective, if you bought it when it started. Also, it's actually 16.66% and okay. it made $6 on the $36 IPO price. Andrew, square root of 36? Six. Six six six. Just saying, Wayfair could be Satan. Could so, be did science. you jump on the conspiracy theory that uh, Wayfair and its astronomical share price run? I don't, this was like one of those classic internet conspiracies that mainstream media has debunked. But if you put your tin hat on, people were saying that they were behind some like child abduction conspiracy. So they were selling couches that were like. $35,000 couches that were basically an Ikea couch. And they're like, well, if you buy this couch, it actually came with a, a child strapped to the bottom of it. I, I that, heard that goes along with your, that. your six, 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 uh, you know, that's, uh, this would certainly be a fuel for that fire of someone who, uh, who believes Disclaimer, in theory. We are not getting on board with any of this conspiracy. This was no. just, internet lore as it is, which is basically what Dollars and Sensibilities is, is just talking about internet lore as it relates to finances. Yes. Fantastic. Speaking of internet lore, there is no (laughs) lack of stories surrounding the third item here, uh, the Tom Brady and Giselle prenup and uh, this, this divorce. So obviously Tom Brady has come back for, I don't even know what year he's in. It seems like it's his, like, I think he's like in his 20, 20th or 21st year in, in the league. Um, so he's playing again with the, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, and at the beginning of the season, all of the rumors started to swirl about his, his marriage and his marriage to Giselle and how the decision to play football was impacting their, their nuptials and their family life. Uh, and you know, now of course they're on that, that road to divorce. Uh, so this was interesting, their, their prenup and how a divorce is going to affect their net worth. So give us a little, little dirt and insight here. This is like a little celebrity gossip we got on dollars and sensibility. You know, I, I don't like the distractions, right? Especially when we're talking about financial things that are personal for, for individuals, do it yourselfers and, asset allocating your portfolio and all that. 
but you, you, you can't kind of escape this Tom Brady, Giselle Bunchen story. So I did. I clicked on one of them, and um, I just thought this was the opposite of, of what I perceived to be the reality. Giselle's net worth, $400 million. Mm-hmm. Tom's net worth, $250 million. I don't know. I, I don't understand. Uh, maybe I don't. I mean, I, I think, you know, we've managed sports people and models and things like that, and, you know, I, I don't know. It just doesn't equate. Like, who knows? Who knows what kind of business Giselle has aside from you know her her, her modeling money? But um, it it comes to mind that the prenup, right? Like that's the big question. Uh, there was a prenup in this marriage, but it doesn't look like it's been updated, right? So if they got married, you know, when did they get married? Ten years ago. Two thousand nine. Yeah. Two thousand nine. A little, a little okay, over so, two ten know, years ago. Yeah, over 10 years ago, and, you know, with the kids now and the moves and in Tampa Bay and Tom signing new contracts with Tampa Bay, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a messy, messy divorce. But unusual, though, right, because what we have here is two celebrities, um, and it looks like that Giselle came into the marriage with more money than Tom did. And, I mean, that, that article yeah. that you sent me talked about how they had, quote unquote, ironclad prenuptial agreements and that everything was kept in separate business entities. And there were some commingled assets, homes and, you know, some things that they had bought together. But it, it would seem like their personal life, like they both have some sort of brand, <laughs> which is such a terrible word to use, but uh, to kind of keep intact. So I don't think either one of them is looking for like a messy divorce. But well, it, it, it seems like it's going to be a pretty easy split of assets, no? Well, the article goes on to say the, the major factor is dividing up the massive property portfolio. So just imagine the prenup happened prior to their marriage in 2009. Mm-hmm. And if you acquired real estate in 2009, right, that was the beginning of one of the best bull runs in the real estate market that we've had. And that's been going on for 13 years now. It's, it's just tapping the brakes lightly now. So, you know, what, whatever they bought $50 million worth of real estate back in 2009, 10 and 11. That's probably worth a billion at this point. Right. And you know, who bought what, you know, do they separate it 50, 50 who takes care of the kids who gets them on weekends? Bloody mess. I say bloody mess. Um, divorce is never fun. It's, uh, you know, I think I think it's the most important decision that, that anybody's ever going to make. Not just because of the financial reasons, because of all the other things that go into to a marriage and a union. But um, yeah, I think that's you know it's unfortunate. Feel bad for for Tom and Giselle. Yes. Uh, here, here's one that that is obviously put on here by you. Uh, not that you're bitter about the World Series loss, but. As the Phillies were playing the Houston Astros in this year's 2022 World Series, um, there was a lot of correlations and talks and memes and articles written about how every single time the Phillies won a World Series, the U.S. went into an economic recession. And you are here to say shenanigans. You're calling you're calling BS I'm, on this. I'm I'm calling BS on it, and I think this is a great example, Andrew. Because they, didn't world, is, because they didn't win the World Series and we're going into recession anyway, is that your... <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's, that's one way to look at it, right? 
they lost the World Series. So then but, we should not they, be going to but recession. It never said, but it never said that when they lose the World Series, we didn't go into recession. It just said when they won, we did. Exactly. So so here's here's where the English gets my goat yet again. And I don't know how I did or why I did this. I just went, nah, it sounds weird, right? Nobody ever checks these facts. It didn't say in the article and all those memes the last three times that the Phillies won the World Series. Or I'm sorry, it's Philadelphia, Philadelphia right? right? Got to check that fact too because it was the Philadelphia Athletics before the Philadelphia Phillies. So I simply just Googled a list of World Series champions and go figure. Philadelphia actually won in 1910, 1911, and 1913. Mm-hmm. And that was... Those are three more times that they won that those memes suggested, and there was not a recession following immediately following that. It was just the the times after that, 29, 30. Uh, ooh, it went, went a long dry spell there, Billy. Yeah. Uh, then Tug McGraw came. 1980. 1980. Yeah. Yep. Man, and then not again until 08. Another 28 years, and hopefully one more time before I before I exit the scene. All right. You want to take the next one? So this could, is an well, could, the, could the argument be made that uh, those early Philadelphia athletics wins set up the greatest financial recession of all time? <laughs> <laughs> no. See? Yeah. You can, you can spin it however you like. It's just not a direct correlation fact. I'm ch- I got to check this now. There wasn't, Let's see, list of recessions, and yeah, I guess. Does data just not go back that far? Wait a second. The panic of the panic of nineteen ten and nineteen eleven lasted two years. The time of recovery, so business activity declined by twenty, no, fourteen point seven percent. It was a mild but lengthy recession. The national product grew by less than 1% and commercial activity and industrial activity declined. The period was also marked by deflation. So in the midst of you trying to save off the city of Philadelphia, uh, it seems, my friend, you are wrong. And then again, recession of 1913 to 1914. Productions and real income declined during this period but were not offset until World War I increased demand which was years later. So, wow, even, even these previous three that you just found were actually recessionary periods in the United States. Arguable, right? Mild recession. And prior to the Great Depression, there was no real metric for, for following <laughs> It was before the, the Great Re- Depression. Doesn't count. Yeah, it counts. Doesn't count. We were only playing seven innings at that point anyway, so whatever. (laughs) I'm debunking your debunking. Uh, Oh, next one. So this is a classic uh, analogy. I gave this on a a presentation to a bunch of college kids one time because it's like you always know what the the answer is going to be. So you, you, you tell, you know, you tell the class, hey, would you rather uh, I give you a million dollar check right now or can I give you a penny and double it every day for one month? And you kind of let everybody start doing some of that mental accounting. And, you know, oftentimes people will choose the million dollar check, but we know that 
by simply taking that penny and doubling every day, how much money do you get? $10.7 million. That's right. And the, the now, illustration is, is always used to highlight the power and the impact of compounding interest. Now, I don't, you know, in my 17 year career, I don't know anything that doubles in value every single day. Uh, and if I did, I probably wouldn't be doing this for a living. But uh, what it does illustrate is over longer periods of time. So we use this and we make correlations to investing in the markets and average stock market returns and earning an annualized 10% uh, on your money for retirement. And what that can do over a period of 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and it's it's impactful. So this this really, you know, I would say like almost extraordinary example is used to, and what I've used it for is try to excite people about like, hey, this is a real thing that starts to get out of hand if you allow it the time to to compound and see the fruits of of the power of compounding interest. That's why I like it. it and you know, Andrew, for me trying to get into the the weeds with the math of it, right? The the question for me was, and I, I just kind of did it in my head. If you start with one penny and double it every day. You did you that get, math in your head. You you did a penny doubled every day gets 10.7 million in your head right now? No. Yeah, well, you were talking. Shenanigans. I rounded. I'm calling shenanigans on <laughs> your shenanigans. Well, I rounded a little bit because because the, the question is, right? And we, again, this is, you know, hyper math, but... Do you get the previous day's two cents when you get the four cents on day three? Or is it just every day? And, and it, it turns out that this is every day is the new number, right? You, you don't get the previous day's money. So what's the statistic? It's still a valid, uh, startling kind of fact, right? If you doubled one penny every day after 30 days, the final doubling would result in 10.7 million. So... You know, for, as an investor, that's the way you should be looking at it, right? And I guess, you know, that number would probably be triple if, if you added them all together and gave someone double the money every, every day following. And but it's such staggering. a basic, it's such a basic financial concept. And, but it's so critical to understand because the power of interest, right? And we, 2022 is such an interesting year to talk about this interesting year to talk about interest because we've seen interest rates move so much. So many Americans are feeling the the change in interest rates in a very, very practical way. And it for savers working for them, high yield interest accounts are now, you know, earning a little bit more, you know, bonds are, are earning a little bit more, you know, CDs for the first time are, are, you know, offering rates that people are like, huh, like maybe I could think about this. Uh, so that's, that's great on the savers, but to the, the point of your, your next line item here, interest can also work against you uh, and really deteriorate your ability to build wealth over time. Um, so this, yeah. is, this is the mortgage example. Yeah, so, so uh, fun fact number eight, over a 30-year, $250,000 mortgage, you will pay a total of $429,673. That's assuming 4% interest. So Andrew, I, I wanted to add this, you know, both of these, the penny doubled and all that, like these are, these are staples of financial advisor lore, right? That we, that we hear all the time at, you know, seminars and things like that. But this goes back to me for our listeners to don't buy the payment. And I just thought it was staggering to kind of hear that 
$250,000 mortgage, you're actually going to pay $430,000 for that house. Remember we were talking about the cars, right? Right. So that's $180,000 in interest payments over, over 30 years. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that is how much? That's 70% of the original cost of, of the home or the original balance of the mortgage, rather. Yeah. That's and, a lot. And the compounding, too. And, you know, we, we could really get into it, probably be best for a separate episode, but we're assuming 4% interest on a 30 year mortgage. Now, again, for a separate episode, and I think we did cover it at one point, but amortization of a loan is very peculiar, right? So you've got a $250,000 loan. You make that first payment for uh, probably $1,300, okay? And that payment, maybe 20 bucks of that goes to the interest or 20 bucks of it goes to the principal and the rest goes to interest and it gets upside down over the years. So it's very, I think the, the, the fun fact turns into a lesson here for people understand what you're purchasing when you purchase a car for five or six years Mm -hmm. or you purchase a home for 30 years on a 30 year fixed mortgage. You really have to look at how much are you paying interest? Sometimes you know what? That's all you can do. If you don't have $250,000 to pay cash for that house, then you've got to pay 4% interest amortized over 30 years and 180 grand at the end of the day. And it's but, funny, sitting, sitting here in you know November, early December of 2022, a 4% interest, 4% interest on a mortgage actually sounds pretty good. Oh, yeah. Considering yeah, what, what interest rates are today. Now, who knows where that'll be in six months or one year, five years, but... A year and a half ago, buyers and borrowers wouldn't wouldn't look at interest rates that were over three and a half percent. Now people are getting quotes at six, you know, high five, seven, I've heard. So a four percent interest rate's like, wow, that, that sounds pretty good. But still, you're gonna pay 70% of the the initial, you know, amount that you borrowed in interest over you're nearly gonna double that payment over 30 years. Well, that's at four. Now we know because again, the amortization schedule, how that works, right? Where you pay more interest in the beginning because it's on a larger amount. If we're talking 6%, that number goes up exponentially. It doesn't go up in a direct correlation. It's, it's not, you know, 2% more. Uh, The number goes up exponentially. We could figure that one out for a, a later date. Uh, so this is really interesting. Uh, your next little fun factoid here. So 1945, the year 1945, the U.S. had the highest marginal tax rate at, drumroll please, 94%. So that means for, for every $100 earned, you took home six bucks. Yeah, <laughs> So put it in perspective though, right? So in 1932, the top marginal tax rate was increased to 63%, reaching 94% in 1944. That was on income over $200,000 a year in 1944. Which, which is the, the equivalent today, of like two and a half million bucks. It's about 3 million in, in today's dollars. Yeah, so you know, if you're making 3 million a year, but kind of scary though, right? It, it, imagine... Imagine you made $200,000 in 1945 and mm-hmm. then 
your net income was $12,000. Mm-hmm. Right? You're still the richest guy on the block, but that's, that's staggering. Yeah. I wonder... I wonder what the tax loopholes were back then and and how much leeway there was. I, you know, I guess we'll, you, you kind of can never know when it comes to assessing historical taxes, right? Because you look at a marginal tax rate, but it doesn't tell the full picture. We, we've talked about this on the podcast a lot where we are, we are talking about the top marginal tax bracket, which is not the same as, as that, that particular person's effective tax rate. So you and I know after reading thousands of, of tax returns in, in our careers, nobody pays what marginal bracket they fall in. Nobody. By, right? the, by mathematical definition, you cannot pay the, the highest that, marginal rate. That's right. right. So, and because of uh, the tax code deductions, itemization, and all the different loopholes that are legally available to taxpayers in the United States, oftentimes it is even much, much lower than what the simple mathematical computation of the effective tax rate would be based on the, the marginal brackets. So you're right. I, I don't know what, what tax law existed in that time for, let's say, business owners or landowners or farm owners, which was probably the vast majority of those high income earners at that time. But I mean, look at the the trend, right? So the 50s, 60s, and 70s, over the next three decades, you had federal income tax rates that were very, very high, that never dipped below 70%. In the 80s, right, with the, uh, the Economic Recovery Tax Act of 81, Finally, the highest tax rate was slashed from 70 to 50%. So you're still paying 50% marginal tax for the highest income earners. Then in the 90s, we saw that uh, decline again to 39.6. And then it's been bounced around through various you know, tax legislation, um, 2013, 2012. Uh, it was still you know, around 43%. Uh, and then the most significant change in, in modern tax history here in 2017, which implemented 2018, the Tax Cut Jobs Act, um, which brought that down to 37%, but also lo- uh, increased things like standard deductions and uh, corporate tax rates and qualified business income, which reduces the income amount tax for, for business owners. So I think the takeaway for me is that, man, I'm grateful for <laughs> current, the current tax code, uh, you know, and if we don't figure out how to, as a country, solve some of the larger, you know, expense burdens that we have a social responsibility to, right? Things that the government is funding and paying for us, there's only one of two ways to fix federal finances, you know, cut spending, increase taxes. Tax revenue is really the the only way the government, one of the only ways, but the predominant way that the government has to to create income, make money. Uh, and man, it 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 definitely could and probably will go up. I I think you're right that it could go up, but it, it brings to mind Andrew the the old uh, cliche. You know, hard times make hard men. Hard men make soft times. Soft times make soft men. So where are we in this cycle? So what, what I mean by that is if we go back to the Great Depression, when things started looking up, or I'm sorry, the marginal tax rate started getting lifted, peaking in 1945, Kennedy in 63 finally lowered it to even the mid-50s. 
Reagan, during his presidency, both terms, there was a lot of deregulation that went on that made it even uh, a sweeter deal, even though the marginal tax rate was up there at the beginning of the 80s. It still made it a sweeter deal for people because of the deregulation and the tax codes at the time. Where are we in this? Meaning, we now have one of the lower marginal tax rates in history. Is that, it, you, we can clearly see from the Depression to World War II, we had an economic boom in the 50s. That lasted about 10 to 15 years. Late 60s, 70s, things started going south again. Tax rates went up in the 80s. But then there was uh, deductions and, and, and write-offs and things, deregulation that helped people along to be more profitable. So GDP went up. You know, it's, it's very confusing, but I, I do think that there is a pattern here, and I think we're going to pay for it in a few years from now with our workforce and our unemployment so low. The Roaring Twenties, right, saw some of the lowest tax brackets in history. Case in point, yeah, right. So, I mean, so like, if like you've got the, the highest earners paying single digit, like seven and eight percent in a marginal rate, right? So, soft times begat. Yeah, soft but hit, but at the same you know, time, hard. I'm looking at this. So the 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 actual tax code was a hundred pages then, which what is it relevant? <laughs> Uh, thousands? I have no idea, but it's not a hundred. I can tell you that. So really interesting. And it, why is this relevant? Like, yeah, it's a fun fact, but uh, why is it relevant? Because taxes is one of those things that it'll be a certainty, right? Like taxes aren't going away. So, you know, these conversations are very relevant when people are taking a look at like their retirement planning and the tax location of their, their investments. Are you selecting, um, you know, pre-tax traditional 401ks, traditional IRAs that will be taxed at ordinary income rates later? Uh, are you taking a look at after-tax, you know, vehicles like Roth retirement accounts that grow tax-deferred and withdrawn tax-free, uh, giving you some semblance of control? Now, you're, you're, you are playing a little bit of a game of like, guess the tax code and, and you know, at some future date. And that future date, you know, for a, a pre-retiree could be in five years or it could be in 30 years. So, you know, you're, you're speculating on where tax rates could be. But what I like about the planning aspect of this is you get the decision of controlling your, your tax future. That's why I've often been a, a big fan of the Roth retirement vehicle, because you get to control so much of your, your tax future. And Absolutely. when you look Take, at statistics, statistics like this, not that it's a guarantee, but there certainly is a, a chance and a precedent that tax rates go up and are much higher than where they have been for the last three decades. Right. Well, yeah, you said it. Roth is the only way you can eliminate that variable. That's right. All right. Next fun fact. Due to hyperinflation in 2009, Zimbabwe started printing $100 trillion bills. I have one of these at home. <laughs> I had a Are you serious? Yeah, Thanks. yeah. $100 trillion bill. A buddy of mine gave it to me years ago, and I was like, what's this? And, it, and I was like, what's that, what's that worth? <laughs> Somebody gives you a $100 trillion bill? <laughs> anyway, I, uh, I thought of it when I was doing this, uh, the Fun Facts episode, and I was like, what's that worth? 40 cents. <laughs> 
40 cents when it was taken out of circulation. Now I also see, see them selling on eBay for five or 10 bucks because you know it's kind of a memorabilia thing, a currency memorabilia thing at this point. But 40 cents was the US dollar equivalent when it was taken out of circulation. I don't think we'll see that uh, $100 trillion bills again from any country, but you never know. Interesting. Um, hey, this is a cool one. So this was a 2004 event. So this was, geez, 18 years ago. Microsoft had issued a special dividend. So a dividend is just a distribution of earnings to shareholders. Uh, those generally happen on, the, on a quarterly basis and by most companies are you know, communicated during earnings calls and things of that nature. And they can go up and they can go down. A special dividend is a one-time dividend that is, you know, sent to, to shareholders because of, you know, probably some sort of financial event. Uh, so I don't know, 2004, that was probably like, those were like those early days of the, the releases of, you know, Windows, Windows. and all those Windows yeah. iterations. But it was a $32 billion special dividend, which sounds like a lot, but that didn't, that wasn't like a lot of winner that didn't go to one person. It went to, you know, millions and millions of investors and it single handedly rose the quarterly U S personal savings rates by one and a half percent. That's crazy. It's crazy That's because it, it crazy. only happened once, right? So start at the beginning. Why would they do that? While a company might have a company like Microsoft, Maybe they're not into acquisitions or research and development. I know they are, but to an extent where if a company has that much cash built up, it makes the share price more attractive when they throw $32 billion to its current shareholders, right? So that's why Microsoft is one of the leading, you know, top 10 stocks on, on, a, on an average annual return basis to this day is they know how to, they know how to work the market, but still U.S. personal savings one and a half percent, you could just eliminate all the math and English in between. They, they put $32 billion into circulation. Right. Yep. Uh, so this is less of a fun fact, more of a, I don't know, it's kind of a depressing fact, but <laughs> it's not uh, fun at all. I know. <laughs> so over half, so more than 50% of Gen Xers have less than $10,000 saved for retirement. Where did you get this fact? Uh, you, did, the you did not, you did not, yeah. <laughs> you did not put a citation on this particular fact. Uh, um, I'll assume for the I, moment I, that, it's, that it's accurate though. I just want everybody to know that I am, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know, if, I don't know who, who, where that's from. Like if that's from Fidelity or if that's from, you know, some reputable research or asset management firm that has data, great. But while you go and look that up for me, Gen Xers uh, are defined <laughs> by individuals born 1965 through 1980. You are a Gen Xer, correct? Correct. So they are currently between the ages of 42 and 57. So this is a demographic that has anywhere between seven to what probably 17 yeah yeah i guess seven seven to 25 years until retirement right yeah yeah and and i think this is one of those andrew it, it's it's a fun fact because it's one of those spooky ones right where where you read and you go oh wow am i am i that person is it first of all it's never too late people so 
be cool. It's okay. If you're a Gen Xer and you don't have $10,000 saved for retirement, it's, it's never too late. And I've seen people, you know, 50, 60 years old, just getting started and, you know, it can, it can compound pretty quickly. But also, the devil's in the details with this as well, saved for retirement. Does this, does this fun fact include, hey, maybe, maybe this Gen Xer um, is 25 years away from retirement. They're on the, the short end of the, uh, the, the date of birth and they own their home, right? Or like we see a lot, Andrew, maybe, maybe these Gen Xers have less than $10,000 saved in their name for retirement, but they're, they have an inheritance coming right? Or they own a business that has a value or they, uh, you know, have, you know, it's, I, I'm assuming this includes 401k and savings for retirement, but I just think that's a, an ambiguous term saved for retirement, right? If you're just looking at checking and brokerage accounts, you know, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, CNBC has some different numbers here. Uh, this medium post, which is kind of trash. That's a terribly unreputable source. Uh, also has, well, it looks like they just took their numbers from CNBC. Uh, I'm trying to find like, does, does Fidelity, because Fidelity as the largest custodian in the country would have um, much, much better data. Forbes has a, a study here done how much should Gen X and millennials have saved at every age. So uh, JP Morgan has a great piece called the uh, the guide to retirement and you know how much you need to save for retirement is is also kind of relative right so a, a a Gen Xer who is 50 years old living in Los Angeles and you know spends $15,000 a month in lifestyle has a much different retirement need than a you know, 50 year old Gen Xer living in uh, Columbus, Ohio, who spends $7,500 a month and owns their home. So it's like, there's a lot of variables that will, will differ on like, well, what do you need? So the reason I like that JP Morgan guide to retirement is because they take a look at age demographics and current income bracket. And they break it down by like 50 or $100,000 increments. So you're basically taking your income and at each age, there is a, a multiplier in according to your income on how much you should have for retirement, which is supposed to give you a back of the napkin way to assess like, hey, am I on track? Which you and I both know that those back of the napkin retirement planning is like a good like starting place. But then to really assess this, you have to get into to the weeds. Do you have an inheritance? Do you own your home? Do you own rental properties? So are they defining this by the amount of money that's in a qualified IRA or 401k? Because yeah, that, that seems terribly low. But yeah, maybe maybe that particular Gen Xer or the survey Gen Xers also have a portfolio of investment properties that give them passive income that'll all have paid off mortgages by the time they're 60. So, you know... It, and and there's all the Fun alternatives too. Maybe yeah. Maybe they have Bitcoin. Maybe they have a sneaker collection that has uh, a value oh. that we could only dream of. Right? <laughs> it happens. It happens too. But the the big part that we haven't mentioned yet about this, social security. So we talked about this a couple episodes with uh, a couple episodes ago. Social insecurity. Um, this doesn't account for Gen Xers. They they might be of the mindset. 
some of them that don't have enough saved of, hey, I'm going to have a couple thousand dollars a month. And again, like you said, if you live in Columbus, Ohio, and you're going to get $2,500 a month from Social Security, maybe that's all you need, right? That's right. All right. So next one. Monopoly money. Monopoly prints more playing currency each year than all the central banks put together. What is that about? I'm, I mean, I pass go. Collect your two hundred dollars. Yeah, well, let's go. That's the thing. Like, do you? How many Monopoly games do they sell per year? And to the best of my recollection, I haven't played Monopoly. Gosh, it's been probably about 18, 20 years. But I remember like 500 was the largest denomination and there wasn't a lot. Like how much is in one game? Like 2,000 bucks? Or not? Yeah, maybe. Maybe five grand. Let's say five grand per box. They sell sell a million of them. I don't know. It seems like a it seems like a crazy fun. Fact I, well, uh, to me, to me, I, I like that. I th- I love Monopoly. I think Monopoly is a great game. I think it's a great like little introduction to you know the world of handling money. Uh, really fun plug for Monopoly. They have a card game called Monopoly Deal, uh, which I love. Like our family loves. It's fantastic because the problem with Monopoly, the only problem with Monopoly is it could take hours to play. It's just so long. Right. So Monopoly Deal, you can play that game in ten to fifteen minutes. It's like a classic what, like card game. What's the what's the deal? Uh, same idea. You're collecting properties and you know uh, paying out cash for things that happen, but it's just a faster paced way to play the game. Do you play? Uh, have you have you played it recently? And if so, do you play the classic or do you have a special edition? Uh, I know I got I a Philadelphia edition sitting in the box somewhere. Yeah, I haven't played regular Monopoly. We we just play Monop- the card version, Monopoly deal. But let's wrap you know, this. I let's wrap a, the episode with your final uh, little bullet point here. That'll be a nice segue into next week. Special episode coming next week, so be sure to tune in next Friday, get all the juicy details. But with the advent of digital banking, only 8% of the world's currency is currently floating in cash. Sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't I, think it. You wouldn't think it because, well, it, it. If you grew up having cash, if you, if you're older than 25, right, you you grew up having cash in your wallet. That was, you know, cash is king is still a a, a catchphrase. But you know, eight uh, percent of the world's currency. It that's that's a that's should be startling to most people, right? Where yeah. You, if you think about the, all the money you spend on a credit card and whatever, like only eight cents of every dollar is actually in paper or coins. Makes sense. Fun episode. Great. Good job. Fun facts. I'm feeling right, more- festive. <laughs> Good times. All right, folks. For Dollars and Sensibilities, I am Bill McBride. And Andrew Martz. Please like, subscribe, comment, and tell a friend. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Dollars and Sensibility podcast. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can join us for each and every episode. Follow us on social media at WIS Advisors and be sure to check out our website at wisadvisors.com. Tune in for the next step on the bridge between dollars and the mind of the sensible investor. Thanks for listening. 
Bill McBride and Andrew Moss are investment advisor representatives and registered representatives with Western International Securities Incorporated. All the opinions expressed by Andrew, Bill and all podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Western International Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Western International Securities may maintain positions discussed in this podcast.